This morning, let's turn to the book of Joshua. As you remember, last week we began an introduction to this book, and I didn't get done, and I probably won't get done with the introduction this morning. If I do, I'll be surprised. Uh, But if not, we'll pick up, uh, Lord willing, next time. If you remember last time, if you just want to turn there and I'll just kind of refresh your memory, we won't even hardly go through these, but just the fact that we're starting this book and uh, we gave, first of all, the title as it's given in our authorized version. It's the book of Joshua. They're even either meaning that it's a book describing something of the exploits of Joshua himself or he is the author or some have said it's even a little bit of both. So uh, be that as it may, we do know it is a book given by inspiration of God, whether we actually know who the author is or not. Uh, Another thing we said about that is something of the date. Uh, Usher gives it around 1451 B.C. There's about 30 years of events that goes on in the time that we begin in chapter 1 until we close at the end of this book. We said the contents of this book is basically a historical narrative And we have to be careful with that because we do know that actually all of the scripture is history as far as we're concerned. But at the same time, we can get, well, it's just a history book. And what does that mean to us? And as, as, as we think of history today, not that important, especially because we don't really know if the history books are correct that are writing these things. But when we come to the word of God, if it's an historical narrative, then we can, first of all, trust that it's true. But the second thing in regards to this is the fact that those things that we see in the Old Testament, especially God dealing with Israel and the people of God and all those things and the particular nations that were raised up at that time, these are all uh, examples or examples, as the Scriptures uh, says, and for us. In other words, that those things were written not just for being written for them sakes and for the nation of Israel itself, but also for us to the whom the end of the worlds are come, the scripture tells us. So when we look at the Old Testament in that light, it doesn't suddenly become then a dead book any longer. We've got these folks who are antinomian and they realize, well, it's all just Old Testament and what's I got to do for us? Well, in reality, the Old Testament was particularly written for the new covenant. And again, we won't really understand the new covenant without the old, and we won't understand the old covenant without the new. So there is that intertwining there of the relationship. But the examples and the lessons that are found in the Old Testament were in particular for us. And then we said there are basically four main parts of the book, and I won't give those, but you can go back and listen to that or ask me later. And I did say finally then it was a book for us in particular, as we just said. For instance, in the book of Romans, chapter 15, uh, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, the, the apostle here, and verse 4, he says, For whatsoever things were written, for things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So there's one of the immediate lessons that we can learn from going through the book of Joshua or for that matter any book of the Old Testament for that very thing. Also another parallel passage of that is 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verse uh, in that section there dealing with why we have the Old Testament scriptures for us. And then I said we need to make a note here on the aspect of types and shadows and examples. Now, the word type, I don't think I gave you a definition, but the word type is generally used to denote, they say, a resemblance between something present, that is something in the Old Testament, and something in the future. 
And we do see words in the New Testament such as examples, shadows, examples, pattern, figures, and such as that. For instance, let me give you an instance of that. We made the mention that Adam, as he was created and in the image of God and so forth, that he was in reality a type or a figure or a representation of the true Christ who is going to come. In Romans 5, verse 14, we don't have to guess about this. We see it very plainly revealed to us. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over the... Them that had not sinned, that's not the verse I want, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, it is. Okay, let me read it again now that I see it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who, that's speaking there, is the figure of him that was to come. And those of us who are familiar with Romans recognize that that is dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Adam, in some aspects of his person, was a type or a shadow or a figure of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's about where we left it last week. And I said there are several things that are given in the book of Joshua that are types or figures or shadows to us. And that's where I stopped. And so now I want to pick up with that very thing that we left off last week. First of all, one of the main characters, obviously, of the book of Joshua is Joshua himself. And they tell us then that Joshua is a type, just like Adam was. Joshua was a type or a figure of Christ. Joshua is the one who leads the people victoriously into the promised land, just as the Lord Jesus does. He is the one who leads us into the land of promise. He was their savior. He was their leader. He was the captain of their salvation. He was their leader and so forth. So, and that's what Christ is to the people of God. The scripture speaks of him and says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You'll notice there he's called Jesus. And why? Because his name means Savior. And by the way, the word Joshua means the same thing. In fact, in the New Testament, you'll never find the word Joshua used when it's in reference to Joshua. You'll find the word Jesus why is that? Because the translators made a mistake? No, that's just how they went from Greek into English. But the point of the matter is there that Joshua's name in the New Testament is Jesus. So we know then that he is that type. Titus 2.14, in speaking to reference to Christ being the one who gave himself for us, is the redeemer of his people, the leader. He says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Again, Acts 5, verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior to, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we see very plainly then in that situation, he is the savior of his people. Another key Personage that we can find in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua is, of course, the people of Israel themselves. What did they represent? What were they a picture of? It's true. They were really there. They went through the issues that they went through that day. They fought the battles. But as the people of Israel as a whole, what were they prefiguring in the New Testament? Well, they were pictures of the believer or of the church, the people of God. And so the things that they go through obviously becomes a type and a shadow for us. So they are a type of the believer. 
what about the nations that are in Canaan that the people of Israel are to go in and to destroy? What is that a type of? Well, they are types of God's enemies. And, of course, a type of our enemies. Sin, uh, the flesh, and the world, and the devil. The Scripture tells us in the New Testament, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So as we read of the conquests of Israel going in and, and having victory over these nations, those that's a picture and a type of the people of God having victory over sin and of the world and the devil. And so we can learn then lessons of how to fight sin and how to mortify. And then that brings me to the fourth one then is the battles they face themselves. What is that a type of? Well, they are a type of the, uh, of the church and the conflicts that we have in our lives as Christians. In particular, as we just mentioned, mortification of sin. Again, a very important doctrine or teaching of the Word of God. The idea that we are to kill sin. As believers, we're not to live with sin in us. We're to kill it. <coughs> Excuse me. We're to be at battle against it. Just as Israel was to come in and wipe out all those foreign nations that lived there in the land of Canaan. They were considered foreigners by that time and strangers. To Israel. Thus they were to take war upon them. And is that not what we're supposed to do in the New Testament with our enemies, sin? The scripture warns us, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Again, Romans tells us, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chamberling and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us, and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Well, that's what's being shown there in the book of Joshua. The people of God fighting against those nations that God said, go in and you wipe them out. Kill every man, woman, boy and girl. Well, what was that was a real thing that they did. But what was that a lesson to us as the people of God? Certainly not to go out and kill our neighbors. No, we're to love them as ourselves. But it's to kill sin. Our enemies, God's enemies, unrighteousness, and deal with sin as we would a true enemy who would be breaking into our house and trying to do harm to our family. We're to treat sin just as that way. Not to make alliance with it. Not to make friendship with it. But we're to kill it. Cut off its head as it raises up. Get down to the root of the matter, indwelling sin, and, and fight with all that's within us. By the grace of God. Well, we'll see that as we look at Joshua leading them into battle doing that. And then the land of Canaan. What does that represent? The land of Canaan. Well, there have been some ideas. Some see it as heaven itself. And there's probably some truth to that to some extent. But as in any type and as any figure, as you push it, you can go too far. For instance, Aaron and Miriam... And um, Moses never made it into the land of Canaan, did they? So are we going to say that they were lost? And so because they didn't arrive over into the Canaan land? Well, of course not. They had faith. The book of Rome, uh, Hebrews tells us very plainly of that very thing. But there isn't a sense, though, we can say that Canaan does represent that heavenly rest. 
And I know that because Hebrews tells us in such a, in such a way. Hebrews chapter, uh, well, let's begin in chapter 3. And he's speaking here of verse 16. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, that is, they provoked God. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses... But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So there is this idea then that Canaan represents heaven. And that's a truism. But again, you can't push that too far. Because if you turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there is an amazing passage there. And so for all those who are busy about hunting carnal Christianity in every verse of Scripture and in everybody's lives, here's a passage of Scripture you need to listen to. Because we have this idea that everyone who dropped dead in the land of, uh, or in the wilderness of sin were lost. That's not true. How do I know that? Look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse uh, 29. Hebrews 11 and verse 29. We know the context here. It's the nation of Israel going through the Red Sea. And guess what it says there? By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. As by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. Now, were all of those men and women unconverted? Well, that's what you'd believe if you were listening to some of the anti-salvation uh, by faith alone bunch that's running around today. But here, now, if this is not saving faith, then how do we know which of these faiths here? And Hebrews 11 is saving. We let you be the judge. We let these carnal Christian heresy hunters be the judge as to what's saving faith. Which one of these faiths here are mentioned in these 40 verses is saving faith and one's not. But it says here, they passed through. And no, they didn't all make it into Canaan. But that did not mean they were lost. And I'm not teaching easy believism here. I'm teaching that Hebrews chapter 11 says they had faith. Saving, justifying faith. Again, not all, obviously. So, be careful with that. That's what I'm saying. You can push a type too far. And the next thing you know, you're teaching something that's contrary to Scripture. But, I would see Canaan a little bit differently as well. I see Canaan, and not only me, but others has to do with the entering in of the Christian life and the warfare that we enter into at the new birth. Again, I realize this too can be stretched too far. Because again, what do we say about Moses? He didn't make it into the Christian life. Well, of course he did. But we're talking about, again, as a type, Canaan represents the, the individual who is under bondage as we were, as the Egyptians or the Israelites were in Egypt under bondage, beings passed through the trials and the troubles they did of the wilderness of sin, and then entering into the land of Canaan as a type of going into the idea of being saved. 
Because once they got into Canaan, were they to have their rest and their ease? No, they were to be busy about those conflicts. They were to be busy about killing those nations and taking possession of the land. And brethren, that's what we do when we are saved. We're not saved just to sit, soak, and sour, as some used to say on the, in the pew. No, we're saved to serve. We're saved to be, to be battling against sin and the world and the devil. In fact, many times in the New Testament, that's part of the picture of the believer. He is seen as a soldier of Christ. And Christ is our captain. And we go through life winning these victories day by day. Yeah, we lose some. Just as Israel had their failures and lack of faith, so do we. I don't know too many. I know a few who say they don't have too many failures, but they're lying through their teeth. We do struggle. Again, remember the passage we quoted there in First Peter. The things abstain from freshly lust which war against the soul. We feel the realities of these things, do we not? Well, the believer is called then when he's entering into this idea of salvation. He is entering into a real battle. And this is why we tell anyone who's to be converted, let me tell you, you better count the costs. Before you believe the gospel. Because once you do, it's not like the TV preachers say. It's a bed of roses and it's a health, wealth, gospel type thing. And you'll just live in prosperity. Not so. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the scripture says. Through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom of God was preached. So there is this warfare. And I think that's what Canaan is picturing. We get through the, the, the bondage of sin and we enter into a new life, a, a new land, as it were, where we battle sin, the world, and the devil. Give you some verses. Paul says, this, I char- this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest, by them mightest war a good warfare. He didn't say, Timothy, I just take your ease. Everything's going to be okay. He says, look, you get up and you fight. And when they knock you down, you get back up again. You pull out your sword and you go to battle, just like in Pilgrim's Progress. Paul again reminded Timothy of that very thing in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And Paul will remind Timothy, look, Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. That's why in Philippians, for instance, we're told, Wherefore, my brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not only in my absence or presence, but more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what we tell people who say they want to be saved. Is this what you want? You want a life of conflict because that's what you'll have. You believe the gospel. You step into the you step as it were into the boxing ring. You've enlisted into the army of Christ. You're a soldier and you'll fight, or you'll die and perish. It's a real thing. It's a reality. Well, that's some of the types that we're going to be looking at as we go through, trusting we will, anyway, as we go through the book of Joshua. 
Now, let me go back to our main text. I don't think I even read a text this morning. I hardly ever do that, do I? Notice in Joshua 1 and verse 1, it says, Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to him, even to the children of Israel. I want us to see now, secondly, this morning, something of the person of Joshua. What kind of man was he like? And I think this will be very important because we see Joshua as a leader. We see him as someone who is the uh, one encouraging others to go in and take possession of the land. He is the captain, as it were, the, the head, the judge of Israel at this time. These are some very important things that as individual Christians we need to understand and to learn. And to see some patterns in our own lives. And so as we look at Joshua this morning in the next few minutes that we have left here, what kind of man was he? Well, I want us not look at the man in Joshua, the book of Joshua itself. I want us to, first of all, look at him before he got to Joshua 1, verse 1. Because remember, the things that happened previous in our lives always bring us up to the point where we're at now. What kind of fellow was Joshua? What kind of man was he? Well, so we see in verse 1 and 2, we know that's who he's talking to. Well, you know, the first time we meet Joshua is back in Exodus chapter 17. So if you want to turn there, you can. We'll be looking at a few of these passages. Exodus 17. And we read first of all of him in chapter this chapter of 17 and beginning in verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat their own, and Aaron and hers stayed up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side, or one on the other side. And his hands were steady unto the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Abimelech, uh, Amalek, excuse me, I got the other fellow messed up there, and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it into the ears of Joshua for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. What do we see, first of all, about this individual, about Joshua? We find a man here, first of all, when we first meet him, we, meet, we see that he's mentioned as a man who is obedient. You want to get somewhere in the Christian walk? Obey your elders. Obey them that are over you. I don't mean necessarily me. But just in all walks of life, none of us here are kings and to ourselves. If you're a worker, you go to work and you got that guy or the lady, as the case may be, breathing down your neck, you're going to have to obey them. You're living at home, you got mommy and daddy. You're a wife, you got a husband. Your husband goes to work, yeah, as I said, you got your boss. Even if you're self-employed, you obey those whom pay your check. You don't have good customer service relations, you ain't going to make any money. They'll go somewhere else, won't they? You step out the door to drive somewhere, you're under who? Government. 
They tell you how fast to drive. They tell you how much to pay on that road you got to pay for. They, you don't own your car. You're written it from the government. All this stuff you're under. And then you think, I'm going to get out and be on my own someday. Boy, let me laugh in your face now because you're not. You're always going to be under some authority. Well, here we find a man who apparently understood that. Here is a man, and this is not just the first time. We see many instances of Joshua as a young man. We'll find out. I think we'll see it here. He's a very young man at this point, and he is obedient. You want to serve, brethren. You're going to have to be obedient. Like it or not, we do. Young people, it's good you learn that now. You have to. But not only that, Exodus 24 tells us he was a servant. A servant. You say, well, I thought he was telling people what to do. Well, there again, you know not the Scriptures. Because a servant does have some authority. I serve the church, I serve you, but I'm also the ruler. I rule over them uh, that are here. That's just Bible. And it's ignorant people who doesn't know any better than that. But a servant can show you in the book of Genesis where um, Abraham's servant ruled over others, but yet he was a servant. Oh, no, what do we do with that? See how people just don't know their Bibles and they say stupid and silly, unbiblical things. But here is Joshua who, yes, Went out and helped fight the army and was under control, uh, over the control of the army as they went out to fight. But yet we find him, though, a very, a very servant himself. Looking at, uh, as we said, Exodus 24, verse 13. And Moses rose up and, oh, look at this. And his minister, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God. His minister. Now, don't take uh, the New Testament idea of minister in the sense that there was someone who uh, Joshua preached to him. That's not what he means here. But he served him is what that word means there. Just as Mark in the New Testament and a couple of others served the Apostle Paul. They were his ministers. It didn't mean there they preached to Paul. It, mean, it meant there that they were Paul's servants. They helped him in the ministry. They were serving him in that light. So, if you don't, there again. That's just Bible, my brethren. Either we like it or we don't like it. Either we believe it or we don't believe it. But here is Joshua, a man who is a servant or a minister over under someone. 33, verse 11. Now, there's a point to that here in just a minute. 33, verse 11. And says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Two things there. One, three things actually. Here again, he is a servant to Moses. The second thing is, he's what? He's a young man. It's hard to get young folks to be humble, isn't it? They already know everything. I don't know why we don't go to and ask them all the questions we have, but because they know it all. They know everything. We're the dummies. Of course, when they get older and get our A's, they realize, well, we did know all that now, but 
At the time, though, they're young. They think they know it all. They got a little experience under their belt, a little education, and they think they're so smart. But in reality, brethren, this is not what we see here. We see someone who is humble, who's a servant. And he was even a young fellow. Notice that also he departed not out of the tabernacle. He was a man given over to worship. The worshiping of his God in the place where God ordained. He wasn't a lone ranger. I'll just go serve God however I please. Nope. He served God as God pleased. There was regulation and discipline in his life. Something, again, foreign to a lot of young folks. But listen to what Jeremiah says. It is good for a man, or for a woman for that matter, I was adding there, but it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. What do you think about that, young folks? Are you ready to kiss the dust, as it were? Not always, are we? We know better, or at least that's what we think. But by the way, not only was that Jeremiah's words, but if you look at that closely, especially the next verse, you'll see that's the terminology of our Lord Jesus speaking. Because the next verse reads, He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. That's the messianic promise of Christ. So we have Jesus to look to, do we not? As the one who was humble. Made himself of no reputation, the scripture tells us, and all those things. Another thing we can say about Joshua real quickly is that he had faith. In fact, he was full of faith. He trusted the promises of God. I won't have the time, but you can run to Numbers 14.6 to see that. Another thing was he was zealous. And I have to be cautious here. I will turn to this one. He was a young man, no doubt. He had zeal, but sometimes, as young folks do, they have a zeal without knowledge. And this we see in Joshua. So it goes to show you he's human here. In Joshua, or Numbers 11 and verse 28. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. He's, he's zealous for his master, his uh, one he served. He was zealous for his sake. Verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Hope I'm in the right spot, yes. And the people of the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them around about the tabernacles. We've got a little bit of the con- uh, context. Verse 28 says, or verse 27 says, And there ran a man and told Moses and said, Elidad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. So he was zealous and jealous. For his master, Moses. But he has to be calmed down a little bit. A lot of times we have to do that to young folks. Now, wait a minute here. Just calm down. Don't get so... Get going here. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? And obviously he was. Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So we see sometimes they had zeal without knowledge. But again, it was something you could easily forgive him for, couldn't you? He was being zealous for his master's sake. And then lastly, he was a man, the scripture says, who was holy followed who holy followed the Lord. When God said it will be Caleb 
and it will be Joshua who go into the land. This was one of the characteristics he said about him. He wholly followed the Lord. Numbers 32, verse 12. Can that be said of us? We wholly followed the Lord. Would be nice, would it not? Let me make some applications and we'll quit. First of all, let me make this. This is uh, this was actually the one I was going to give last week, but we ran out of time. Uh, and as we said, as we're looking at all this of the nation of Israel in particular, we will see the obedience of the people and their disobedience of the people. We will see their faith and we'll also see their failures in faith. And it's quite easy, brethren, for us to sit and to read and even for me to preach upon this, such things in a distant sort of a way with a very uh, uncharitable, as it were, judgment upon them. Well, they should have known better. I mean, look at all the knowledge I got. And all that. But we need to realize they were real people. The nation of Israel was, they were real folks, just like us. Working out their salvation with fear and trembling, just like us. They lived like us. They lived in a world that was contrary to God, just like we do in every age. And as I said, we can very easily see their errors. But, brethren, what if our own history was being written and recorded. Our own thoughts, our faith, our deeds, our actions, our failures will be written down. You think we would fare any better than they did? Probably not. So, yes, it is. It's very easy to be judging upon silly Israel, isn't it? How foolish those folks were. I mean, they saw the power of God and splitting the Red Sea and the whole nation walking through, God covering up the chariots of, of Egypt and all the men. Why wouldn't they believe everything else? Well, brethren, why don't you believe all what the Bible says and apply it and live by it? You know, well, well I've got indwelling sin. Well, so did they. But why are we more judging towards them than we are ourselves? So we have to be careful with that. Now, one of the things, again, as we go through this, we want to be kept from that error of this uncharitable view of others, whether Israel or our fellow brethren, in light of these things. It's really easy to whip out the sword of discipline, isn't it? And start cutting. Wouldn't you be glad the sword of justice doesn't fall on you that quick? And then secondly, young folks... See the qualities and the character here of Joshua. How you should even desire to be like that. Here was a man who did not follow the crowd. Remember the the spies that went over into the land? Caleb and Joshua didn't agree with them. The majority was wrong. The crowd was wrong. And Joshua didn't stand with them. He stood and said, we can defeat the giants in that land. God has already promised us those things. They didn't believe the world. He didn't. They didn't believe the crowd. Well, young folks, that's what you need to do. And then thirdly, all this begins by faith. 
entering into a le- eternal life is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confessing His name. Following Him as you are. And yes, entering into that land of Canaan, a type of the trials and the struggles of the true Christian walk in life. Do so, though, by faith in Christ Jesus.